You're listening to Expanding Horizons, the podcast of the Unitarian Church of South Australia, a home of progressive spirituality and free religious thought and action since 1854. The views expressed in these podcasts are those of the speaker and are not intended to represent the position of the church itself or of the worldwide Unitarian Universalist movement. For more information, visit unitariansa.org.au. Some reflections today on personal responsibility. The ego, in its own crazy way, tries to cope with the world. And part of its self-appointed role is to avoid displeasure. When the ego recognises that it has caused problems in relationships by offending someone or doing a job badly, the ego is always tempted to avoid responsibility. Probably the contemporary icon of avoiding responsibility is that American with a funny hairstyle. No, not Donald Trump. Bart Simpson. The cartoon character who instantly responded whenever any mischief was discovered, I didn't do it, nobody saw me do it, you can't prove anything. The attitudes also crept into our modern society with the popular idiom, not my problem. Of course, this attitude is the antithesis of what we're about, taking some responsibility to care for others. Avoiding responsibility is also a great way of getting out of work. The classic example I give is the story of a council worker from a certain unnamed council, uh, the bloke who had the job of being on a ride on mower, mowing one of the reserves. Now, someone had dumped a mattress in the middle of the reserve, which is not a very nice thing to do. So how did the council worker respond? His job was to mow the lawn, not move mattresses. So he mowed around it. Later, when the council worker responsible for removing dumped rubbish came and took away the mattress, there was a funny-shaped growth of lawn in the middle of the neatly mowed reserve. One can imagine the lawnmower man saying to himself, not my problem. Now, Tom Lehrer, the brilliant singer and satirist who wrote so many funny songs in the 1950s and 60s, wrote a song about Werner von Braun, the inventor of guided missiles used by the Nazi military to indiscriminately bomb London during World War II. So part of the song is, Once the rockets go up, who cares where they come down? That's not my department, says Werner von Braun. And uh, like many of his colleagues, he went to work for the USA after the war. He had what they call transferable skills. Anyway, uh, in the modern society, technology can assist us in avoiding responsibility. About 15 years ago, there was a clever English comedy show called Little Britain. And in just about every episode, a customer approached a customer service person at a desk asking for something. The customer service person would type furiously at the computer, eventually look at the screen, then say to the customer, computer says no. (laughs) 
I wonder how often you've had that experience. Now, we all want good customer service and we want to deal with companies that are ethical and caring. And in corporate life now, CSR is becoming discussed in every major boardroom. Corporate social responsibility. There's even been a recent book published by business author David Jones entitled Who Cares Wins. It seems that although the current generation of young adults are not necessarily devoting themselves to political or religious institutions, they do care about the environment, they care about values, they care about whether companies uphold those values or not. It's become good business for corporations to trumpet the good work they're doing for the poor or for the environment. And there's even a term for it in current marketing language, virtue signalling. Conversely, it can hit companies' share price hard if they are exposed in some widespread immoral activity. It is an encouraging trend and it will continue to be driven by consumers and investors like you and me. The key to personal responsibility is knowledge of good and bad and the power to act accordingly. It's said that animals don't have a moral sense and that could be extended to some human beings. Our law allows for that, actually, confining people to a mental institution rather than a prison if it can be demonstrated that they did not know that their violent action was wrong, for example. There's also the possibility that one very well knows what is right and wrong, but one has no power to act. For example, we see on television or the internet some terrible injustice in the Ukraine, the Middle East or somewhere. Uh, our options to influence the outcome are so limited. So it's a case of caring, but without responsibility. But now I get to the point of what I really wanted to talk about in considering personal wants responsibility. Who is responsible for your spiritual growth? To put it in the old language, who is responsible for salvation? Let us consider for a moment and seek to understand the Christian answer. When I say Christian in this context, I mean the version originally based in Rome, which evolved into Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox Christianity, mainstream Christianity, the Christianity which became dominant over a period of centuries. So the official Christian doctrine is that the crucifixion of Jesus somehow assured potentially all humanity of acceptance into heaven. The suffering of one instantly allowed for forgiveness of the many, like some ancient animal sacrifice. But where did this idea come from? As early as Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, written within decades of the death of Yeshua, it is written, Christ died for our sins. In turn, this was based on earlier Jewish scripture, various descriptions about the anticipated Messiah, some more direct than others. For example, Isaiah, one of the best known of Jewish prophets, imagined the Messiah as, quote, the lamb being led to the slaughter. And he also said, quote, the punishment that brought us peace was on him. When Paul was introducing this notion of a universal atonement for others, there were two critical factors he would have had in mind. 
As the early Christian movement, through Paul, moved away from its Jewish roots, some explanation had to be given about why Jesus died. If he was a god, as claimed, then how could he die? He could have zapped the Roman army in a moment, if he was God. The answer came back, yes, he could have done that, but he chose to be sacrificed in order to provide a communal benefit, like the old lamb sacrifice. Secondly, it's evident from Jewish scripture that the tribes had practiced animal sacrifice in earlier times, and it was still being practiced at the big temple in Jerusalem in the time that Yeshua lived. There were several kinds of sacrifice of animals and other foods referred to in the book of Leviticus in the Torah, the the Jewish scripture. The killing of a living being in conjunction with intense ritual and prayer was a powerful evocative act which was believed to allow communion with God. Sometimes the sacrifice of an animal in a burnt offering was to aid a petition to God. Sometimes the sacrifice was to thank God. Sometimes the offering was for reconciliation with God after transgressions. But in that case, the ritual required the penance of the participants for the appeasement, reconciliation or forgiveness to take place. Among these rituals was Yom Kippur, literally the Day of Atonement. This was based on the story of Moses chastising his tribe for apostasy when he caught them worshipping the golden calf. The Ashamanu prayer, translation, we have sinned, said in synagogues at the time of Yom Kippur each year, involves a long series of confessions to God on behalf of the Jewish people, asking for forgiveness of sins for the entire community. Apart from the religious aspect, the practice of animal sacrifice had some sociological benefits, although not for the animals. It was an honour to provide the animal to be slaughtered. Often one of the wealthier families would donate the animal and they would be thanked and respected accordingly. In most cases, the meat of the animal was not thrown away or burnt. It provided food for the priestly clan. On some occasions, it also provided a feast for the local community so that widows, children and less able adults would be able to share in the food. Anyway, you can see why Paul would have used the imagery of lamb sacrifice to explain the painful death of a teacher who was being proclaimed as God. The notion was, however, expanded upon by Christian theologians in the subsequent centuries. Augustine, for example, put it in terms of a ransom theory. He perceived a dualistic view of the moral universe. To him, therefore, the suffering by human crucifixion of the Christ figure was enough of a ransom payment to Satan to release all of humanity from their captivity in the material world. It was a bit like those hostage movies where the hero offers to become a hostage if only all of the civilians will be released by the kidnapper. The doctrine of atonement has not, in fact, ever been completely settled among all Christians. Indeed, there are profound questions about how one can really take punishment for another. And even now, the Eastern Orthodox churches would describe it differently to the Roman Catholic Church, and Christian scholars still debate soteriology, the study of salvation, or one might say the study of how humans might come to a good end. 
At any rate, the soteriology developed by the dominant form of Christianity was a powerful psychological tool. Most human beings are troubled by their shortcomings and to accept Christianity under that model meant that some external agency could remove all causes for guilt over and over if necessary. So I took a moment to review these Jewish and Christian notions of sacrifice because I suggest in all of that there are spiritual truths to be drawn out of it. Whether or not one accepts those doctrines. The concept of sacrifice remains valuable. If we are to advance spiritually, there are sacrifices to be made. The path requires that we discern our passions and the temptations of life, to restrain the ego's selfish inclinations, we must learn to look at our passions with a degree of detachment and, if necessary, to quieten them down. No one else can do that for us. It is deeply individual work, but it certainly helps to be part of a spiritual community in which others are also striving to be better, kinder, more gracious and more caring. We all seek reconciliation, to be at peace within ourselves and to enjoy peaceful relations with all those we encounter. Some find that much easier than others. There are workplaces and families and personal hardships which can make it very difficult. The old doctrines held there was an external agency which can bring forgiveness. I'm not here to say whether a supreme being exists to grant forgiveness or not. You may choose, however, to take on your personal responsibility to reconcile yourself with others wherever, whenever, and to the greatest extent possible so that you might, in that way, bring more peace into the world. Generally, the reconciliation rituals in the long-established religions required some sort of penance, making things right in one's relations where possible. It's not about flogging yourself or burning animals, but some sacrifice must be made. It might take your money, your effort, or the humiliation of an apology to make things right with others. And I would add to the requirement for the modern person the condition of self-forgiveness, which is much harder than it sounds for anyone with a conscience. Some hurts, once done, cannot be undone. Sometimes the wrong can't be made right. But with complete clarity as to the moral failure, with a resolution to never be in a position to repeat the error, and an unreserved contrition, self-forgiveness is perhaps possible, and we owe it to ourselves to strive for that. If you are willing to wholeheartedly commit yourself to reconciliation within and in your relationships, you are preparing yourself for your own spiritual growth and you take a step toward reconciliation at the level of our entire society. It's up to you.
to make that commitment. You're listening to Expanding Horizons, the podcast of the Unitarian Church of South Australia, a home of progressive spirituality and free religious thought and action since 1854. The views expressed in these podcasts are those of the speaker and are not intended to represent the position of the church itself or of the worldwide Unitarian Universalist movement. For more information, visit unitariansa.org.au.